a podcast about amazing people from an incredible state. Amazing Arizonans with Mike Broomhead. This edition of Amazing Arizonans, I couldn't be happier. Uh, Jerry Colangelo. Uh, Mr. Colangelo, thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Mike. Nice, nice to be with you. Um, we have to, obviously, we've got to start in the beginning, at least the beginning for the Valley, and we've got to go back to the days of the Phoenix Suns and the Madhouse on McDowell. And how did that start? I mean, in your mind, how was that going to begin? Well, it begins with uh, the fact that um, Phoenix was awarded a franchise uh, by the NBA. Um, there was a little bit of uh, uh, new number of new teams coming in, uh, new cities being awarded franchises. And two years earlier, uh, in 1966, I was part of the Chicago Bulls startup in Chicago um, and then was asked to come to uh, Phoenix in 68 to start a new franchise. And um, this was a, the, an old Wild West town back then. And uh, it was interesting. I had uh, the opportunities to stay in Chicago with the Bulls. Uh, Milwaukee was the other expansion team along with Phoenix, and I was offered the GM job there. Uh, I was a young guy at 25, 20, going on 26, and uh, uh, there weren't many people with experience. There were only nine teams in the NBA before Chicago was awarded a team. So my timing was, was perfect in the sense of having opportunity. Didn't know that all these things were going to take place. And uh, I remember coming here for a visit, um, having the Chicago and Milwaukee opportunities there. Um, I landed in, in Phoenix on a day it was 20 below at O'Hare, uh, and I smelled orange blossoms for the first time, and I saw an interesting thing. I saw the Wild West, so to speak. There were 700,000 people in the entire valley back then in 1968. And, uh, but I also saw the, an opportunity like painting your own portrait. There wasn't any history to overcome. Uh, this was really going to be a, a a great opportunity and during the course of the day and, and seeing the madhouse on McDowell before it was called that it was a new coliseum with a one-year history uh, the uh, hockey team the roadrunners had been there for one year in the western hockey league and uh, for example they didn't even have uh, dressing rooms locker rooms i mean literally they had a couple of, of rooms where um uh, they had racks brought in and you put your clothes on the racks and I mean it was we had a lot of work to do but the point being after that one day of uh, interviewing um, I was thinking pretty seriously about the opportunity and I was being pushed you know to, to make a decision by the people interviewing me I said look um, I, I need to go home speak to my wife look at the other weigh the other options uh, I'll get back to you in a couple of days um, but I had already, just in case, negotiated a deal. And uh, I got to the hotel. Before cell phones, you had to get to a, a phone. And I called my wife, and literally I said, pack your bags, babe, it's Phoenix. And two weeks later, we arrived with three little kids, two, four, and six, 
nine suitcases and 300 bucks in my pocket. Wow. And got off a plane and never really looked back in terms of making that decision. Uh, and it was the beginning of a whole new life. Where me. was your first home in Phoenix? Um, we rented a place at 40th Street and um, um, Campbell. Okay. Uh, Williamsburg Square. And it's still there. I mean, the, these uh, townhomes are still there and they still look very nice. And then um, I was able to put a deal together to um, to build a house, believe it or not, uh, a year and a half later out in Moon Valley, which was very rustic back then. Uh, nothing was built up. A lot of orange orchards and the school wasn't there. None of the retail was out there. But you'll love this, Mike. Um, we built a house, a 3,000 square foot house. Um, I, I built a pool. I built a fence. The whole thing was $65,000. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And that was 1970? That was 1969, 70. Okay. So we were there for five or six years. And for me, it seemed like I was too far away from where I wanted to be, like downtown. Mm -hmm. And um, so then we started uh, to move in closer and uh, lived at Central and uh, and uh, Glendale for a number of years. And then we finally made it down to Phoenix Country Club, which is where we've we've had our home, the most recent home for the last 15 years but 20 years at another location there. Now, why there, you might ask? When I would meet people around the world and you would talk about where you're from, They'd say, well, you're from Arizona. Where do you live? In Scottsdale, Paradise Valley? And I'd say, no, I live in Phoenix. In fact, I live right in the heart of Phoenix at Central and and uh, Thomas. And uh, I said, I'm a city guy. I like to go to sleep with the windows open at night. I can hear gunshots. I can hear <laughs> all kinds of things. And it makes me feel at home. And they think I'm serious. And, of course, I'm not. Right. Um, but think about it. Uh, being in basketball and then later on in baseball, I was five to eight minutes away from downtown in my office and where most of my life was right there. In the and that's a beautiful buildings. area. That it's Phoenix gorgeous. country is gorgeous in there. It's a gorgeous area. It's a it's a um, it's it's a, a real play a real place that uh, that's where the gold waters and some of the old time Phoenicians uh, lived way back in the day. And uh, the country club is a hundred years old. It's been there forever, and uh, it, it served our purpose real well. When you before we get to the Suns, let's talk about the NBA. Mm-hmm. Did you ever imagine at that time that the NBA would become what it's become? No, no, not at all. When Chicago was awarded the franchise, it, the cost was a million two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's a pretty good investment. The payroll uh, that first year in Chicago was a hundred and eighty thousand dollars wow. for twelve players. Ticket prices were two, three, four bucks. Wow, that's how it was. It was a mom and pop league. No one could have projected what what would happen and how how it would happen. Uh, two years later, when I went to Phoenix, the cost of the franchise was two million dollars. Our payroll was about two fifty that first year with the Suns, two hundred fifty thousand. So you can see that was then, and you can look at where things are today. But it all really escalated 
um, in the last 20 years, big time. Were, were the Phoenix Suns, <clears throat> were you well-received here in the Valley from the very beginning, not just from the fans' point of view, but an investor point of view and, and season tickets and all that stuff? Where Was was it right away, was it a success? Uh, I'll say yes, but uh, very, very specifically, uh, we were 16 and 66 that first year as an expansion team. We lost the flip of the coin for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It went to Milwaukee. Uh, during that offseason, that first offseason, uh, I signed Connie Hawkins out of the ABA, um, drafted Neil Walk, who went on to be a good center in the NBA, um, traded for Paul Silas, who was a big-time power forward. Uh, we had Gail Goodrich. We had Dick Van Arsdale, etc. Um, I fired my good friend, Coach Johnny Kerr, at midseason and, and sat in myself to coach the team. We made the playoffs in our second year. We won 39 games. It was the biggest turnaround in the history of the NBA, going from 16 to 39. Uh, we had the Lakers down in the first round of the playoffs when they had West, Jerry West, wow. Elgin Baylor, and and uh, Will Chamberlain. And we were up 3-1 to one in that series. And they came back to beat us. And I could at least laugh about it now and say, well, with any coaching, we might have done a little <laughs> better. Um, but so I would say we established ourselves quickly. Um, and I think part of what happened here is that the fans really bought into, they trusted me. They really did in terms of what was being said, how we conducted ourselves. In fact, my first um, real public uh, announcement when I was introduced as the uh, general manager, the youngest in, in professional sports at the time was the community owes us nothing. It's up to us to earn the respect and support of the community by how we conduct ourselves, not only on the court, but off the court, in the community, how we contribute to making it a better place in which to live. And it's it never changed all those years. You know, we built kind of a family atmosphere with uh, all of our people. We had thousands of people who worked for us full time, part time. Uh, it was an exciting time for me as a young person to start something from scratch and see it build and grow. And I felt we were ambassadors for the city of Phoenix and the state of Arizona. It's interesting you say that because my next question was going to be about that piece of it is mm -hmm. you've always had people that were easy to cheer for. They were good in the community. I was going to ask you, was that a part of the equation? And so you've already answered that. But how big of a how much were you willing to sacrifice to make sure you had not only great players, but great people? Well, um, you know, we're a product of our own experiences. And uh, I was blessed to have some physical ability and, and participated on a high level in terms of basketball and baseball and had professional opportunities, etc. Um, so I, th I thought I had a pretty good feel for what it takes to be a, to, to be a winner or to build a, a team. And we just tried to be consistent. And if you if you say one thing and, and act out differently in terms of your conduct, uh, 
people will lose interest in you and support of you and uh, won't trust you. Um, and so, yeah, I had my own criteria and what I expected out of people who, who are alongside me, working with me, uh, and expected players to respond a particular way. Those were my, um, that was my motivation. And I was consistent with that. In fact, over the years, people know who followed uh, the Suns uh, in particular, um, there were times when I moved players because of issues and problems that didn't fit in. Mm -hmm. When um, I moved here in 1995, I came from a small town in southwest Florida, Fort Myers. Mm -hmm. There was no professional basketball team near us. The closest team was the Orlando Magic. Right. My first NBA game, I got to see the Orlando Magic play the Seattle Supersonics. Mm -hmm. So it was Shaq and it was Sean Kemp. Yep. And I was blown away at how such big men could be so athletic. Right. I got to move here in 95 and experience some of the best the Suns had to offer. I was a right. beneficiary of that. Can you explain what that was like? Because the atmosphere here was just electric for that team, for those teams. It was. Um, I'll make one comment. Uh, first of all, during my my tenure, call it tenure from 68 until 2004, uh, when I absolutely walked walked away uh, the Suns had the fourth best record in the NBA history we were always pretty good there were only a handful of years when we slipped a little but we were right back uh, we rebuilt the franchise two or three times in the early years with great um, um, results in 1987 when I was able to put a group together to buy the team uh, at that time for $44.5 million. Um, I traded our best player to Larry Nance, who I loved him. I loved him as a person, as a player, but he was our best asset. And we traded him to Cleveland for some young players and a draft pick. The uh, players were Kevin Johnson, who had one year under his belt uh, playing behind, behind um, uh, an all-star guard. Um, Ty Corbin, who was a bench player, and and uh, Mark West, who was a backup center and a first-round pick. So with those players and the draft pick turning out to be Dan Marley, and I signed Tom Chambers during that the first unrestricted free agent in history that offseason, um, we went from, um, from where we were in terms of a record, 20-some wins, to 55 wins in the conference finals in one year. So that was a total rebuild real quick. It's much more difficult today with the rules as they are um, to, to, to turn things around that quickly. It takes much more, uh, much more time to get it done. So, um, you know, I, I would say that we had, we had a, a great opportunity to win a couple championships, maybe three, but it wasn't in the cards. Now, let's talk about 92-93. Yeah. You know, we, we opened a brand new building. We were sold out before for, for the season before we played our first game, before we acquired Barkley that summer. We had a new coach in Paul Silas, excuse me, Paul Westfall, and uh, we led the NBA with our record from day one to the end of the season, uh, and it was a magical year. You know, Charles Barkley had an MVP season. Uh, the city caught fire, you know, regarding the new building, the sellout crowds. the Everything was, like, perfect, it seemed. 
Uh, we play the Lakers in the first round at home, and we lose the first two games. And we're on the verge of being eliminated after all of what I just yeah. said. And uh, we go over to L.A. to play the next two games. And Paul Westfall, who um, was a terrific player and a, an excellent coach, uh, we had a lot of years together, um, he made a comment. He says, look, we're going over to L.A. We're going to win game two. We're going to win game two. Excuse me, win game one. And we'll win game two. And we're coming back to Phoenix and we're going to win here. And we're going to go on. It's exactly what happened. And we were that close to not in game three to, to not moving forward. Yeah. So it was an incredible opportunity to, to, to go further. But unfortunately, um, there was a guy named Michael Jordan. You know that yeah. name. Yeah. Uh, playing in Chicago and um, Scottie Pippen, the two of them. And then, of course, um, uh, they had an excellent team. They had yeah. a great support group. Uh, and they beat us in, in, the, in the finals. And uh, that was a big disappointment for me because it's interesting. Um, I've always been motivated to win from the time I was a kid in anything I participated in. And that was my goal. That was my objective in high school. Uh, the only thing I wanted out of life was to win a high school basketball championship. And on the night we were eliminated by a shot that went in, that didn't go in, that went round and round. And it was right at the buzzer. We lose by one and we were 27 and one. And, you know, to me, the world ended that night. Yeah. The next morning, I found out the sun did rise and life did go on. And so you, you have a scar. You know, you get a lot of scars along the way. And so, but it em emboldens you for the next opportunity. Why don't I go to Kansas University? Because Will Chamberlain was there. And I figured we could win an NCAA championship. And I had over 60 offers for college basketball. And I chose... Kansas over Illinois and Notre Dame and Michigan, who were my other two, three, four choices that I was interested in and uh, got to know them, lockered next to them. Um, freshmen couldn't, were not eligible back then, so I had to sit up and practice with the varsity every day. Uh, learned a lot along the way and then transferred to Illinois when he confided in me that he was going to sign with the Globetrotters for $75,000 in 19 57 and I said well I'm going home because being in Lawrence Kansas was just like being on the moon coming out of Chicago yeah, right and uh, I went to Illinois and met my wife of 62 years when I got there um, you know was captain at Illinois and had a nice little career and um, but the interesting thing is going back to my roots so to speak uh, the name identification was there, you know, like in the Chicago right. media and so forth. And so after graduation, I had opportunities to go into uh, business and management training programs, coaching, teaching, which I thought I might do. Uh, I went into a small business with a buddy of mine back in the old neighborhood. I played semi-pro ball for 50 bucks a game, which kept me going. Um, but after three years, I wasn't going anywhere. Right. Uh, and then I met someone who had a dream. And his dream was to bring pro basketball to Chicago. And the first time I called him, he says, oh, I remember you. You played at Illinois. 
bingo. You know, there, that yeah. was the connection. Connection at home. And um, and so uh, six months later, we had a franchise, and we named them the Chicago Bulls. You get a kick out of this. The He and I, Dick Klein by name, um, we were on Rush Street at a restaurant, one of his favorite restaurants in Chicago. And we, we were two weeks away from the owners in, in the NBA from making a decision. I mentioned earlier there were only nine teams in the NBA. Um, we were the, going to be the 10th team if awarded a franchise. So Mr. Klein says to me, he says, Jerry, we, we don't even have a name. We're, we don't even know for sure where we can play. I said, we, we can't play at the stadium because the Wirtz family that owns the hockey team said no. They didn't believe basketball could make it in the city of Chicago. The only other arena at that time was the amphitheater, the old stockyards. I mean, it had a stench, really did. Um, it was a smaller arena, uh, needed a lot of work, but that was it. That's what we had to offer. And he said to me, what about a name? And I said, well, Dick, I know the newspapers like short names, Cubs, Sox, Bears. We're going to be at the amphitheater. That's where they slaughtered the cows and the sheep and whatever else. I said, we need something that represents a toughness in the city of Chicago. He said, what are you talking about? I said, bulls. He said, that's it. So think about it. Companies spend millions of dollars right. to do just that. It only cost a steak and a couple of drinks, and we had a name. And you came up with the name. Yeah, that's correct. I, I've, I've learned a lot about you, but I did not know that about yeah. you. Yeah, that's that's one of the things. Well, there's a lot of things we, don't, we do know about people and a lot of things you don't know. Um, but that was my beginning. The reason I, I say some of those things is that you, you don't know how it's all going to go. I could not... I was on cloud 99 to be part of a an nba franchise at a young age um you know it's interesting i was uh, playing for, in a in a league a pro league um in the called the midwest league i was the only white guy on an all-black chicago team at the time and um i got traded during during this quest of trying to get an NBA franchise, I was still playing in, in this league, but I got traded to Holland, Michigan. And on the day that the announcement was made by the NBA owners, uh, Mr. Klein, who, who was in New York, uh, calls me at his, at the offices in, in in Chicago, and he says, "We're in. We got we got it." No one in Chicago knew what we were doing. It was all under under wraps. Wow! And so, as soon as he said, "We're in," uh, I had some things. I had a lot of work to do. I had a game in Holland, Michigan, that night in a snowstorm, and we were playing the Chicago team that had just traded me, and I really wanted to play in this last game. I knew it would be my last game, and so I sent out a telegram to all the media and it said an important sports announcement of both local and national interest will be made tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. at the Water Tower Inn. Signed the Chicago Bulls. Nobody knew who we were. So now fast forward to driving around the, the lake and the, those are people who know Chicago and the, and the Midwest, the lake effect with snowstorms sure. in the in this winter. Um, I got to the site, played in the game, um, 
didn't say anything to the guys, you know, in the, in the locker room before the game about what was going to be announced the next day because a number of the guys I was playing with were that close to being in the NBA, but only 10 players a year made it. That's how tough it was yeah. to get into the NBA. So um, we played the game. We go into overtime. I had a, a great way to finish. I had 37. I hit the game winner. Uh, I get in the locker room, and now we're all celebrating a big win. Um, and my buddy from Illinois, Manny Jackson, who went on to be the owner of the Harlem Globetrotters, who I played with at Illinois. He was two years older than me. Uh, he had my valuables. He didn't know it, but they were in a bag. He took the bag, and I didn't have my keys, my money. And I've got to get home in a snowstorm and get to the water tower in for that that announcement. I finally get home. No shower, change clothes, continue on. And I had news releases already made up. And uh, at 9 o'clock, I was there passing out the news releases. That's how I broke into the NBA. Did the did the media receive the Chicago Bulls well? Yes, very much so. Funny story, uh, we had a we, we wanted to make a splash, so I I I have to say I leased a bull, a live bull, <laughs> put it on a flat car, and Johnny Kerr, who was going to be our head coach, and Dick Klein and myself, um, we were all in cowboy hats for whatever reason. We had a live bull on this flat car. We went down Michigan Avenue, the main drag in Chicago at midday and we're throwing out pamphlets to sell season tickets. I think we sold four. So you learn a lesson. Yeah. But it was it was funny. In fact, over at GCU where they have this museum in my yeah. honor, uh, there's a photo that I that I just described to you of the three of us on the, with the flat car and the bull. It's a great memory. I interviewed Dan Marley in that museum. Uh-huh. It was it was a, that was a lot of fun. Thank you. Um, so let's do you keep in touch with, uh, let's say, the new owner of the Suns, Matt Ishby. Do you have you had conversations with him? Did, did he seek you out for some advice? Maybe. Yeah, he did early, early on. And uh, I appreciated appreciated that very much. We've had conversations. Um, he's a very busy guy, a very successful guy. I think he's going to do extremely well. I think he's bright. I think he's hungry. Um, you know, I'll call him a basketball person. He played under Tom Izzo at uh, Michigan State. Um, and so, um, yeah, I have high hopes for a lot of great things to happen. And I like all the moves that have taken place. I've uh, when I. I talk about the suns on the air i'm so happy for people in arizona i'm a transplant but for the yep. people that have been here for generations now this is a phoenix suns town with all due respect to the other sports when the suns are good there is a buzz in this town like no other and what the suns have brought here for the last couple of seasons and the hopes for this season coming up it feels like those mid-90s when yes, i first moved yes. here i agree i agree we went through uh, the franchise went through some very tough years in between. Right. As you know. Um, but that was yesterday. That was, um, you know, I, I will say this. When we uh, won the the World Series 
in baseball, when I was asked to bring baseball to, to Phoenix, um, after some deliberation with myself, uh, I said, let's try, let's let's go for a franchise, because I thought that could bring a great deal to our community. Um, growing up in the Chicago area, where as a kid before TV, we listened to all the baseball games on radio. I was a, a strong Cub fan. Um, you know, eventually I, you know, was offered a contract by a number of teams in baseball as a left-handed pitcher. Um, but I thought about how families were brought together, grandparents taking kids to games and so forth. And that's something I wanted to, to deliver to Phoenix. That was a deciding factor for me, even though the baseball owners at the last minute didn't do us a real justice. They increased the price of the franchise um, uh, to us. They took away TV money for a few years. Those two things, along with a cost overrun on steel and, and concrete to build the facility at a time when China had a stranglehold on steel and concrete. I remember that. That was a $35 million cost overrun. So we, we were under the gun right from day one. Um, yet, four years after we were offered the, excuse me, we started the franchise, we won a World Series. And uh, moments before uh, Gonzo scored, uh, got the hit, and Jay Bell scored the winning run, I'm sitting in my seats, and I know this is it. And I'm thinking to myself, and I said to myself, Lord, you have a funny sense of humor. All I've ever wanted was an NBA championship. And it, we close, but no cigar. Very thankful for everything, but no cigar. And here we are in the fourth year in Major League Baseball, and we're going to win it. It was quite a moment. The um, I can't even imagine that that kind of success that fast in a franchise. The town, I, my that that win. Um, I was not at the game, right? But I was in North Phoenix, living in a condo, mm -hmm. and screaming on my balcony, yeah. and cars honking horns, oh, and yeah. so a friend called me, and a bunch of us jumped in a car. You went downtown. and went downtown. Yeah, uh, that feeling of that euphoria of that win. You've told a story, and I, maybe it was me that asked you, or maybe I overheard somebody else ask you the question about watching Jay Bell score that run and how it was oh, kind yeah. of the tunnel vision. Can you right. tell that story? Yeah, for, well. Very quickly, um, uh, the day we had our press conference when at the beginning of the World Series, uh, the media wanted, you know, it was my time to be interviewed. And they said, well, Jerry, how do you feel? You're the fastest ever to get this far, you know, four years. And and I said, look, we're we're, we're honored. We feel we feel blessed. And and if we're ever going to win our first first one. Who better than against the Yankees? And someone said, "Are you predicting you're going to you're going to win?" And I said, um, "No, but here's what I would here's what I would like to see happen. I'd like to see the series go seven games. I'd like to see us win it in Game Seven in our building in the last inning with the bases loaded, two outs, and Gonzo at the plate." I said that, and that's in writing, by the way. That's incredible. That's yeah. So while now here we are, and this is all unfolding in the night inning and I'm thinking again like you got to be kidding me this is this is happening everything was right except there was one out not two outs mm -hmm. that's the only thing so 
when Gonzo, you know, today we could say it was a line drive hit. No, yeah. it was a little blooper. It was. And the infill had been drawn in. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so I looked over at third, um, and there's Jay. Now, Jay was not known for quickness. Yep. And I, I tell you, it looked like he was moving in slow motion when he left the bag to come to home plate. And it took forever for him to go from third base to home plate. And when he hit home plate, everything exploded for me. You know, it was live again. Yeah. But during that little stretch, it was like, is this really, you know, is it going to happen? And so that was a great moment for um, for all of us, for the community, for for the game. I mean, to this day, uh, people, many people in baseball say that was one of the, the maybe the greatest World Series. Um, we talked with Gonzo mm-hmm. and got perspective on his, you know, yeah. getting the hit. One of the things he talked about, we and I asked him about, was 9-11. Yeah. And the aftermath and being in New York City. Right. And to go back to your comment about character, he said the team had made a decision because they were up when they went to New York, that if they had won the World Series in New York, that they weren't going to celebrate on the field, that they thought they would have respect for the fans in New York. To have that be, for those guys, the biggest series in their lives, Mm -hmm. to say, we know that there's something bigger, and we're not going to ruin that. We'll go celebrate in the locker room. That says a lot about that team. Well, we had great character on that team. We really did. Um, You know, Joe Joe, uh, Garagiola was my first GM. Uh, and it was his first opportunity to be a GM. He had been a uh, the son of a of a major leaguer, Joe Garagiola Sr., and, and a terrific guy and and a, a legend, a legend. And Joe Joe was really really a very special guy to me. I remember after our first year um, as an expansion team, we made a decision: we're not going to wait. We're going to try and win now. And that meant free taking a look at free agency and being aggressive and buy now and pay later in all probability. Um, But I would be worth it if we could establish support for the franchise, which I thought long run was really an important thing. And so we had a game plan. You know, we had targets, players we wanted to get. The first guy was Randy Johnson. Oh, yeah. Um, And I'll tell you the Randy story very quickly. But as far as Gonzo was concerned, uh, I said, Joe, we need a third outfielder. Give me a list of who's out there that we think. And he gave me a list, but Gonzo wasn't on the list. He was at Detroit at the time. And I knew of him because of his background. He was with Chicago. He was with Houston, followed it somewhat. Um, I said, what about Gonzo? He says, well, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't speak to Detroit. I said, well, call them. You know, we have we have a young we had a young player on our roster who was kind of a you know, a lot of bling, you know, a lot of stuff yeah. around, around the neck. And he was a, a young player um, from Central America and he was a Dodger. And um, so Joe calls Detroit and they were interested in our, our player um, for Gonzo. And Joe calls me back and I said, well, call him back and tell him I want five hundred thousand dollars along with Gonzo and we'll give him the player. He called me back. He says, we got him. Wow. That's how Gonzo became a, a Diamondback. He went on to have, a thir- I think, a 33-game hitting streak that first year. I tore up his contract right away. 
to, to honor him, to let him know that there's a lot more where that came from based on production. You know, when people produce, I love doing things for them. I'm not happy when people get a lot of money and they don't produce, mm-hmm. but that's part of the game. Randy Johnson's agent called me um, and said, Randy Johnson's moving to Phoenix. This is before we played our first game with the Diamondbacks. Um, and he said he's moving to Phoenix. He was with Seattle at the time. Um, he'd love to have season tickets uh, for the Suns. And I said, well, you know, we're sold out and we have a wait list of 5,000 people. He says, well, you know, he, you never know what the future will hold. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the season tickets. I'll, I'll figure it out. I said, but you owe me. He said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, I'll let you know when the time comes. So he becomes a free agent, and now he's going to meet with, you know, a, a few teams. And uh, the agent calls me. He says, well, wh- what do you want to do? I says, okay, here's my request. I want to be the first one to talk with him and the last. In other words, first in and last out. Yeah. Uh, two bites of the apple. So I go to his home when when it's time now and we we have the opportunity to to meet. And Randy says to me, um, I don't see how this can work. Buck Showalter, you know how he is and blah, blah. You know, he was a very intense guy. He's, yeah, Randy he's, was sir. always very intense. Yeah. And I said, hold it, Randy, just a minute. You know, you were talking about your long hair. I said, well, if if you had long hair and you had rings come out, coming out of your nose and your ears, and um, um, what, what was the third one? And tattoos from the top of your head to the bottom of your toes, I'd say pass. But one out of three is okay. And he laughed, and that just kind of broke down the, the whole thing. So we had a great session. He went on to meet with three other teams, and then I get a call back from the agent. He says, okay, we're finished. You know, you want to meet again? I said, absolutely. And I knew we had him at that time. So we got Randy. We added all the free agents that we did piece by piece. And um, it was an exciting time for us. It, and then, of course, when, um, um, you know, you, you need pitching. And um, we, ha- we had the horses. And Kurt Schilling was the second. For a, for a team to have two number one starters yeah. was a big-time deal. And they both put together an incredible season. Um, weren't they co-MVPs of the World Series? Um, no. They no, weren't? I think it was only Randy. Was it? I yeah. thought they were co-MVPs. Okay, but... If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. You may be wrong. Well, I'm That's probably not right. That's I'm probably not right. But anyway, it was, it was fun. But back to your original th- thought. Guys with character talent commitment it was fun these were these were real adults if you look at the players that have played for you um, you look at Gonzo and and Dan Marley and Charles Barkley and you look at some of the names and I know I'm not mentioning all of them but you look at the players that played for you that are still so loved in this town mm-hmm. Gonzo is such an ambassador for baseball Absolutely. still people love Dan Marley they right. just love that guy yeah. and that says a lot about who they are it's not just what they did on the court or on the field they people feel like they know them I know I know Gonzo a little bit and I've been to events with him and people just gravitate to him still to this day and that was 2001 yeah well again character always stands out and if you 
mind your P's and Q's, you stay out of trouble, and and you act like an adult, and com- get involved in the community, and they all did, that you're the people you're talking about, um, there's usually a good result. So let's jump to USA Basketball, mm-hmm. because you have also been credited with saving USA Basketball and taking it back to and getting to a level of greatness. Mm-hmm. Why take on that challenge? What was it that motivated you to take that on? Um, well, 2004, I have to go back to 2004. Um I had sold the Suns, and I had done that for financial planning. Um, and, you know, we sold the, fr- the franchise for $400 million after purchasing it for $45 million. It was the highest price ever paid for a franchise at that time, and it remained the highest for the next seven years until the Warriors were sold. And then, of course, it went crazy. It got into the billions. Yeah. I don't look back on that. I made a decision. I thought it was the right decision at the time. Uh, so that was that. I stepped down in baseball uh, from the Diamondbacks. That's a long story, and I will not get into a lot okay. of detail That's on fine. that one. And then um, I also ended up with prostate cancer that year. And at the end of the year, I had the surgery in, in New York um, on the last day of the year because I wanted to get 04 behind me and start with a clean slate for 05. Uh, I'm recuperating at home after spending a few weeks in New York after surgery. And David Stern, the commissioner of the NBA, called and, you know, checking on me. And he said, look, would you take over USA Basketball? Um, and I'm an instinctive person. I, I kind of know in advance what I, my answer is before I'm asked the question. I don't know why that is. And I said, yes, but I have two conditions. He said, what are they? I said, one, full autonomy. No more committees. I pick the coaches. I pick the players. He says, done. What's number two? I said, I don't want to hear about a budget. And he, he ran in and he because that was his. <laughs> right. I let him go. And I said, David, are you finished? He says, yeah. I said, it's still number two. But don't worry about it. I will raise the money in sponsorships and stuff like yeah. that. But if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it my way. And I'll spend what I feel I need to spend to get the job done. And that was it. Now, why did I do that? My time, I was available. Let's put it that way. I was, yeah, I had other interests, financial interests. I was in real estate and stuff like that. But my life and my passion has always been the game. You know, basketball, baseball, etc. And so I had thought about very quickly representing your city is one thing. Representing your country is another thing on the international stage. And the state of affairs for USA Basketball was it was down. In 04, in the Olympics in Greece, uh, it was a bad showing. Not only finishing third, but how they played, how they acted. It just didn't, it wasn't classy. And so, very quickly, I knew in my mind, we had to change the culture. We had to turn things around. We had to gain back the respect um, that we once had worldwide. But how do you do that? You do that by showing respect for everyone else. 
Um, I had a choice of, I brought all the former Olympic coaches and some of the great names of basketball. You name them, he was probably there in Chicago when I called a meeting in early 05 because I wanted to pick everyone's brain. They all were there out of respect for me and vice versa. I, you were all Olympians. I want each of you to talk about your experience. I want you to say, tell us what you think needs to be done. Blah, blah, blah. It was a wonderful, it was a great day. If you were a fly on the wall, a basketball fly, yeah. that was the greatest wall in the world to hear and see all these people. You know, uh, the Magics and the um, uh, Michael Jordans and the Jerry Wests and all the great coaches. And by the way, when we were, we went through, you know, like the players, position by position. I wanted to hear what their thoughts were. We were all very close. You know, we right. all had, on the coaches, it was interesting. I had a list of college coaches and pro coaches. Now, Dean Smith, who was the coach at North Carolina, yeah. was a former Olympic coach. And when we were talking about the college coaches, and Dean Smith said, you know, his biggest rival, yeah. Coach K's coach biggest K? rival, he says, there's only one college guy up there who could get the job done because they all respect him, they all know him, and that's Coach K. That was a, a seminal moment for me to hear something like that. You know, I'll always remember him doing that for and uh, recommending Coach K. But those were my two picks before the meeting were Coach K and, and Popovich. Yeah. And as it turned out, that's that's where everyone was. So um, started the journey. I picked I picked Coach K. I met with each player that I wanted to meet with and basically said, here's the state of affairs. Here's why I'm doing this. I don't know how much you know about my background. They all did. You know, I came from the same side of the street. Same side of the tracks. I get it. I understand it. And I enjoyed a, a pretty strong, positive uh, position in the minds of the, the players in the NBA at that time. They wanted to come. They wanted to play here. They knew they were going to be well compensated and cared for as people. And so... But I had, I had to, a little litany I had to get through. And I said, look, I'm going to pick... 12 guys who can do the following. And if you want to be considered, here are the four things. One, two, three, four. If you can't do any one of those, you're out. And I will find 12 who are going to fit in. Well, very quickly after I just met with a couple, the word spread. You know, the guys all talk anyway. And so I didn't have any issue getting the players to play that first time. But it was it was fun. Uh, Michael Red, who was a player with uh, Milwaukee at the time and a shooter. And I, I had to, Coach K and I both felt that we weren't talking about an all-star team per se. Yeah, you want stars, but you need role players. You need sure. role players. Michael Red was a scorer, a shooter. And we looked at him as, as one of those. So I wanted to interview him. I, I kind of stationed myself at the Water Tower Inn in Chicago over, uh, you know, three, four days when week and saw teams coming in and through like LeBron I met with while while I was there. Michael Red had practice up in Milwaukee, jumped in a car, came down to Chicago, weather wasn't good, had not even changed. He was still in his sweats, but he had a change he had a suit with him. He came to my suite, he excused himself, went into the washroom and put a suit and tie on for the wow. interview. 
you know, things like that make a big impression. Sure. And so, you know, if you start, you could start with talent and immediately right alongside is character. And if you kind of stick to a formula like that, you're going to you can't eliminate all the issues or problems, but quite a few of them. So that successful run with USA Basketball, when you look at what was accomplished there, how does that rate? Is it comparable to anything else you've done? Well, um, let me just, you know, we never even said what took place. We won in 08 in Beijing, 12 in London, 16 in Rio, 21 in Tokyo. Uh, Should have been 20, but COVID pushed it, pushed it out. But let's go back to 08, because we had put all this work into building something in anticipation of the 08 Olympics. And Colby was played for the first time mm-hmm. with, um, you know, he had he had just scored 81 points in a game and came to Phoenix. And he and I met in my offices at the arena and I was just going to put him on. Uh, we, we had inter- interviewed him and worked him out before the draft. And I thought we had a great shot at getting him until the Lakers traded uh, a position with Charlotte and they jumped us in the draft. Yeah, we had a backup. Steve Nash, who turned out to be pretty good. It turned out to be pretty good. But Kobe was the guy, okay? So I knew him from that, and then I saw him kick our butts pretty pretty much over the years. And so I said, Kobe, um, I want you to know I'm thinking about giving you a different assignment if you're on this team. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, uh, I may not want you to be a scorer. I want you to be a distributor. And he kind of looked at me and he says, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I just want to be on the team. Oh, wow. Pretty neat. Wow. that That's very, yeah. especially for his reputation of right. wanting to have the ball in his hands and shoot the ball. So the first day we get to camp, um, he's up at 5 a.m. and he's in a workout room. And other players took notice of that. I mean, we had we had a long day of workouts. and No, but he had an extra 5 a.m. Wow. Well, by the end of the first week, half the roster was with him at 5 a.m. That's leadership. The first scrimmage, there's a loose ball, and he's diving head first for the loose ball and could have hurt himself. Mm-hmm. Again, showing leadership. So we're on our way to, to Beijing. Coach K and I are sitting together. And we hit the tarmac, and we both looked at each other and said, you know, we're ready. So um, the game, first game we played against was China. It was the most, and still is today, the most watched basketball game ever in the history of the game. Um, And, of course, it was a big thing in China. I mean, all of their, um, you know, the president and, you know, prime minister and all these people were there. The Bushes were all there. And they wanted me to be sitting with them. And I didn't want to be there. I usually, I I concentrate on the game. I mean, I'm still playing and and coaching in my own mind when I'm not. Um, But I'm just kind of built that way. Uh, So I recall uh, at halftime of that game, I had to go down and do a national television interview. And I had no problem in getting down. I was going to have trouble in my mind getting back because security was really messed up. So I do the interview. I get back upstairs and I'm stopped by the Chinese military. I had all these credentials. I mean, it should have been an easy 
thing. And no, I couldn't make headway. And then the prime minister is just walking by to go to the John. And I said, excuse me, would you tell these people that I'm with, with you sitting in your seats? He said something and the seat parted and I went back to my seat. So that's pretty good to have. That's a memory. Kind of, yeah, I was going to say that's a, that's not a bad name to drop. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, what, 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 oh yeah, here, here's what happened. We win it. We win the, mm-hmm. we win, and it was a great uh, the final game against Spain. Could have gone either way. Although we had beaten them by 25 in an earlier round, they were ready for us in the championship game. And Colby and Dwayne Wade, in particular, were the guys who got us to the you know to the end so so it was over i remember coach k and i hugging on the court right after the game he gave me a big kiss um, on the cheek and um, we were all embracing and um, i said later on i said very few people have the opportunity to have um, a game plan watch it perfectly executed and get the desired result and that all happened with the medals being presented the star spangled banner being played and the flag being lifted i mean it was an unbelievable moment it's i would think that would be one of the most patriotic moments for me to realize that your entire country is supporting absolutely Uh, I don't know how many hours it was getting back on our charter, uh, 16, 18 hours. I never slept. I kept getting messages, text messages on the plane. And I was up all night just responding to people all over the country from, you know, a lot of names and a lot of just fans and whatever. Um, You know, to have that opportunity to to represent my country under those circumstances and change attitudes of people who now we because they respected us again, not just for winning, but how we conducted ourselves. Mm -hmm. That was um, that was a great experience. So timing is everything in life. My opportunity to to get started in the NBA back in Chicago in 1966 because of name identification and being an athlete in the Midwest in particular and go to the end. You know, you were talking about the Olympics. How did that happen? Well, that's how it happened. Um, And it was a great, great experience. And now to be involved, as I have been for the last 12 years, with um, Grand Canyon University. That was going to be my next. I mean, mean, it's perfect. I mean, I I told you before we had this started this podcast that I was over at practice this morning. And to be around young people, be it in the in the Colangelo Business School, where I have a chance to share with with these students um, about life. And, you know, I'm a practical person. I'll, I'll say things to them like, you know, put down your 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 iPhone, put on your tech technology. Look, look people in the eye, shake hands. Life is relational. You have to start there. That'll the, the technology can only take you so far. So that's one thing. Don't be afraid to fail. Step out on a plank. You may slip and fall. Okay, be the last one up. That's the important thing. Don't ever quit. You know, don't ever quit. When people say, you can't do that. I said, people said that to me many times. And my attitude was, 
I can, I will, and I'm going to show you how, although I didn't know at the time how. But I was committed to making it happen, is yeah. the point. So success in life is an attitude as well as anything else. you got to work harder than everyone else. But for me right now, being around young people and sharing... Um, I tell stories. It's funny. I walk in the classrooms and I listen to whatever they're talking about. And, you know, over my, you know, I'm, I'm 83 years old. So I've had a lot of experiences in sports and business, etc. And I can I can relate to what the subject matter. But I'll interrupt and I'll tell the story or two. And they said, well, Jerry, you've got so many. Uh, no, Mr. Colangelo, you, you, you've got all these stories. And I said, well, look, you get to be my age. You can't remember facts. So you tell stories. <laughs> you tell stories. It's a lot easier. But it's a great tool. People like to hear stories. I love them. Yeah. I love One of the reasons why I was so glad you accepted this is because of your the depth of history you have here in this town. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you about GCU, because now sure. you're in a gym with a basketball team, fans going crazy, team playing that week is the biggest game of their lives. But in comparison to the other things you've done in the sport, do you still get as excited for those games in that gym as you did in some of the others? Well, it's hard to make comparisons, but l let's put it this way. For the players and the coaches who are participating, it means as much to them in that moment as, as I was describing winning the World Series yeah, or all the other successes. So in my mind, I'm cheering for them for the moment they're enjoying. And yeah, I'm enjoying it just as much. And to watch their development, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. It's, it's, um, it's all about the, the, the family. You know, to me, it's about faith. It's about family. It's about teamwork. It is. Um, this has been a privilege. Um, I talked a little bit with uh, with Bickley because I know you guys have a great association. Um, it, it, does it does it sit well with you that you know how big of a part of the history of this town you are? Um, that's all for others to look at, analyze, and and uh, say whatever they w wish to say. Um, I've I've tried my best never to get caught up in anything that's ever happened that I've accomplished or done. You know, to me, it's another day. It's another thing to to uh, to go out there and do the very best you can. Um, so I, I don't spend any time thinking about it. And one of my other sayings is, "Don't think so much; you get in trouble." And so, um, no, I, I'm very appreciative. Let me let me just say this, Mike. It's this town offered me incredible opportunity. And so um, I feel that I've done the very best I can to do the best I can in everything that I've done in helping rebuild downtown Phoenix in all of the efforts in the community to advance the city, advance the state, because I've been involved in most every major thing that's happened over 50 years. Um, and that was not due to my ability to get a lot of things done, but name identification. And so by association, by lending support and and sometimes rolling up my sleeves to do what I can to make things uh, accomplished, you know, I, I could tell you so many stories. The first, the first All-Star game in 1976, NBA All-Star game, 
uh, I went to see Bob Wessler, who was the president of CBS Sports in New York. I didn't know him. I just I set up an appointment. I said, Bob, uh, we're going to have the NBA All-Star Game in, in Phoenix. Back then, by the way, the NBA front office didn't do anything. It was up to the local team to put everything on. So I said to Wessler, I said, uh, I want two minutes on the front of the telecast. He said, what? I said, yeah. He said, why? I says, well, Andy Williams is a limited partner. I want him singing by the time I get to Phoenix. I want to see the sun rising over Camelback Mountain. And I want to use that as a pitch to the business community to support what we're doing. Well, he was impressed. He gave it to me. So uh, that All-Star game in 1976, Andy Williams was singing. By the time I get to Phoenix, the sun was rising over Camelback, and uh, we got the game sold out. When you look, the reason why I asked that question is I think sports are so much a part of a culture in a town. Yes. You come from a town that is so culture-rich in its sports. Mm -hmm. You brought a big flavor of that here, and the other sports teams that have come after, with with respect to them, they're chasing that kind of culture. If you look at what the Diamondbacks have accomplished with the World Championship, but you look at the Suns, mm-hmm. this is a Suns town. You, you brought not just a team, but you developed a culture in a community that was just growing. So yeah. you say timing, but you also were a big piece of that. Well, you know, I remember in the early days, the first year of the Suns, when teams would come in to play us, there were more as many people cheering for the visiting team as our team. Why? Because people who were here, bear in mind that in 1945, there were like 50,000 people here. Yeah. But many uh, military people were trained here for the war, during the war. Many of them came back after the war and said, I want to live in Arizona. So all of a sudden, it was a big splash in, atten- in I was going to say attendance, but population sure. went up uh, quite a bit. And so, um, you know, the people living here, therefore, had allegiances to their teams back in their hometowns. Sure. And it was going to, and I said this to some of my people. I said, okay, someday they're not going to be able to get in the building. They're going to be all Phoenix Suns fans. Right. And eventually you get there. But how do you do it? Day at a time, step at a time, building the culture, running your program the way you should, winning, uh, having good people, and over a period of time. Now you're into the third generation, fourth generation of fans. That's why it's a Suns fan. Well, Suns town. Anecdotal evidence, but we do an event every year at the Wildlife World Zoo out in the West Valley yeah. for fire. Firemen and for police. It's mm-hmm. called the Red and Blue Day at the Zoo. Yeah. And at the event, all of the mascots of the major teams showed up. Yeah. And behind the gate is the Suns Gorilla. When he steps out, even those little kids go crazy. Yeah. That's just a sign of the culture and yeah. what he stands for in this town. Did you, do you know the story on how we ended up with the No, gorilla? I would love to hear it. So one day we had a game at the Madhouse on McDowell, and um, there was a, a company called Eastern Onion, which was a promotional company. And they had caricatures and animals they sent out for events, like to celebrate someone's birthday or whatever. Okay. So here comes this character in a gorilla outfit to a game and during the game he went to the seating uh, area where this person uh, was and he started you know it was a happy birthday 
you know, kind of a show. But I was kind of taken by how the fans just kind of took to this creature. So I said to my promotion guy, I said, call Eastern Onion. Um, tell them I want to I want to use this guy, use the, the gorilla and uh, we'll pay, you know, whatever it is that blah, blah, blah. He got back to me and he, the guy said no. He said no. Why? He says he, he didn't want to share him. I said, well, now you call the gorilla and tell him I want to see him. <laughs> so you got I, the guy. I, I made a deal with the gorilla. The guy who lost out was the guy who yeah, had the gorilla. Right. And so uh, to watch how the how he became such an iconic feature and a part of our whole you know thing our our theme was amazing and were the, mascots big in professional sports no, then just starting he you know the gorilla was one of the was the number two mascot in um, to make the hall of fame the uh, the uh, mascot hall of fame first one was the san diego chicken really oh yeah what about the philly yeah but that came later okay oh, it did okay yeah that's it's such an incredible story, but again, it's an indication of the influence and the culture. Yeah. So yeah. what what's next? Like, what are you working on now? I mean, GCU is an amazing place, and what they're accomplishing. Is there something else that you're working on? Are you other projects you you can let us in on that's happening? No, except except just the realization that at 83, you're in the home stretch. You don't know exactly, you know, when you're making that final turn. So. You want to finish strong, and to me, that's important, and that's taking care of my family in every respect, in every regard, and preparing for their their futures, um, and to leave a positive mark on everything I've done, um, and that'll keep me busy for the rest of the time I have. Let me, um, I was going to end it, but there's one other person I'd like to address, and we talked about this on the air recently, um, Al McCoy, mm-hmm. what he has meant to the Valley, and again, person of character, legendary in what he does for a living, but also such a good man. What is What does he mean to the community, and what did he mean to you in his time when you were at the Suns together? Well, he was not our first uh, radio television guy. Uh, when when I got here, uh, a guy named Carl Eller um, was going to be one of the partners. He stepped out of the um, partnership before it even became real, um, but he had negotiated a deal with the other uh, uh, partners for radio and television rights, and it was KTAR Radio and TV. And even the play-by-play guy, Bob Vache, who was later killed in an automobile accident during that first year of, of the Suns, was going to be... In other words, that was done before I arrived. Right. Um, so I'd, I started hearing El McCoy, you know, in the marketplace on radio. And so I liked his voice, was strong. Um, and so um, Vache is killed. I moved Rod Hunley to play-by-play. Johnny Kerr, who was my coach and that I replaced, I put him into the color situation. And then after that, I, I went to El McCoy. But here's a funny story. You'll, you, the first year when I was here, when I first arrived in Phoenix, my first office was the grandstand of the um, State Fair 
grounds. It was a little warehouse room. I needed some place for a while until I found. I mean, under the grandstands yes. out there. It, I needed I needed some place with a phone to get started in the first few weeks. So the doors open. I've got a box and a chair and a phone, and somebody knocks on the door and, uh, excuse me, are are you Jerry Colangelo? And I said yes. He said my name's Al Michaels. Um, I'm here with the uh, um, Hawaii Islanders AAA baseball team. Now, you know who Al well, Michaels is. Of course, is. I'm okay. Al Michaels. Okay. So, he was applying for the job. How about that? I mean, to tell you how you cross paths sometimes no kidding. with people. And uh, and I said, well, let me let me have some information and your resume and stuff like that. But, you know, he and I became friends. And over the years, we've reminisced about that many he times. He had a legendary career of his own. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I appreciate the time today. I, I think for the people in Arizona, I know everybody in this building excited about this because hearing these stories, you know, again, I'm a transplant. I feel like a Phoenician. Yeah. But I've only I came here in '95. To hear the roots and hear the behind-the-scenes stories, I think means a lot to people. Thank Keeping you. that history alive and what you've accomplished. Um, thank you so much for what you've done in the Valley, but for doing this. I know you're a busy man, and and I just appreciate you taking the time. Okay, you got it. Thank you. Mike. All right, Jerry Colangelo. Discover more amazing Arizonans with Mike Broomhead at KTAR.com, the KTAR News app or wherever you get your podcasts.